This is the Educated Home Buyer. Everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Hey guys, before we get started, Jeb and I had a quick favor to ask. The best way for a podcast to grow is through word of mouth. So if you have any friends, family, coworkers, or anyone you know who's looking at buying, selling, or financing a piece of real estate, we would appreciate it if you would share the show through messaging or on social media. It's the best way for us to grow and to achieve our goal of building as many educated home buyers as possible. Again, we appreciate you watching. We appreciate you sharing. Let's get started. Dave Ramsey's advice might make it near impossible to buy a home. And in today's podcast, we're going to be talking in detail about Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey comes with a lot of wisdom, a lot of really good advice, but some of it isn't really practical, especially if you're in high cost areas. So what we're going to do today is break down the five, the six top things that Dave Ramsey recommends when preparing to buy a home. We're going to give our little spin on it. We're going to talk about what Dave says about it in order to help you become the educated home buyer. Josh, like I said, Dave comes with a lot of wisdom, a lot of really good quotes, things like, if you live like no one, later you can live like no one, right? So the idea is that if you can sacrifice- Well, they don't want to be no one, Jeb, no other. Live like no other so you can live like no other. No one live like no one. one. The quote is no one. But nevertheless, really good advice. If you sacrifice now, you can put yourself in a position to do things that others can't do later in the future. And by all means, really, really good stuff. But in some cases, you just have to push forward because homeownership creates generational wealth. We've talked about that. But following some of this advice, you'll never be able to buy a home. So with that, Josh, I think let's just start at the top. You know, what Dave Ramsey believes maybe some of the flaws in the initial thinking, and then we'll dive into it. Absolutely. And I'll just double down on what you said. Anyone who's ever sat behind a microphone, whether it's a podcast, you make videos on YouTube, you used to do a bunch of radio, Dave Ramsey is king. And for very good reasons, he has a system of knowledge that works for a large group of people. The reason why he is the biggest financial radio personality in the world is because it's middle of the bell curve, middle to left of the bell curve for the majority of people and for any of those struggling with finances, his advice is going to move you up the food chain. It's really conservative. We got to remember that he came out of the South. We got to remember that he was a real estate investor, lost a bunch of properties. We did our episode last week, Jeb, on mistakes we've made. He's got great stories about the mistakes he's made and that's informed his thought process and decision-making. So we believe a lot of good advice in here meshes closely with a lot of what we advise, but some really big portions are way off. And if you follow them or attempt to follow them, especially if you don't live in the South where homes are cheaper, in the Midwest where homes are cheaper, you are never going to be able to get where you want to go utilizing homeownership as a pillar of your life, lifetime wealth building. No, absolutely. Again, really good advice, not practical for the majority of people out there, especially in high cost areas. So let's start with the first principle that he teaches or one thing that he's really big on. And that's the idea that you shouldn't be buying a house until you're completely out of debt and you have money in some sort of reserve account, six months of reserves, if you will. So what are your initial thoughts when I say that? The idea of not buying a house until you're completely out of debt. Let's 
start with the portion of it that I agree with. You have to have a manageable debt load. I regularly have people reach out and they make good money and they're such monstrous debt in terms of total credit cards, total installment loans that I look at it and go, we have a bigger issue here in terms of how you're allocating your resources. You're making good money, but you are living beyond your means if you are relying on this much debt. Occasionally, we can be on the other end of the spectrum. They don't make a lot of money and they have to live that way. Either way, not a great recipe for owning a home, but let's clarify what Dave means. He's not kidding around, no debt. Like he'll tell you, buy a used car, pay it off as quickly as possible. So we're not talking about, hey, I have a $300 car lease or car loan. That's reasonable. That's 3%, 5% of my income. That's a reasonable number. He literally wants you to have no debt. Now, I don't follow him closely enough to know exactly what he means in terms of credit cards. I have a lot of clients that use credit cards. And when we pull uh, the credit report, you're looking at $1,000, $1,200, $1,500. They're trying to get miles, points. Maybe it's the target card that gets you 5% off, all of that stuff. People use credit for very reasonable reasons. So I don't think you need to get dogmatic about this and sit here and say, until everything on my credit is zeroed out, I shouldn't buy. And we didn't put this in the outline here for the show, Jeb, but one of the areas where I 250% disagree with him and that he's horrifically wrong is pay off your debt. Don't use credit. It's okay to not have a credit score. When you go to get a loan, if you have achieved his milestone of having no debt and not using credit for the last two, three, four years, you will not have a credit score. If you are attempting to get a conventional loan, that will be problematic. 90% of lenders will not do that loan. The ones that will do not have the best terms. So you are not going to get the best terms on your loan. And with that, one of the things that he talks about, one of the principles we're going to talk about is that he believes that you should basically have a mortgage payment that is manageable. And that seems pretty common sense approach. So when I think of that, I think of having a budget, knowing where your money goes. And if, for example, that you make X amount per month, right? And you're comfortable with whatever that mortgage payment is. And you have a credit card, you have some student loans, maybe you have a car payment, but yet you're still comfortable with the idea of having a mortgage and having these other things that you're going to be paying anyway. I don't think you need to have zero debt. It's all about being able to manage that money. The thing is, he never talks about the idea of you, you should have zero debt before you rent. You got to have something, right? So if you're trading one for the other, you're better off owning a home for the things that we've talked about in other episodes, paying down the principal, appreciation, for savings, all of those things where you're not getting it in rent at all. And then sometimes when you're renting, you have those debts. I think, yeah, it would be really good to be able to buy a house, have absolutely no debt, be able to take one of the principles that he talks about, which we're going to save till the end is how much money you should spend on your mortgage, which is absolutely insane, but being able to really be able to push that number, if you will, by having no debt. So again, good advice, but not practical. And look at it this way, Jeb, in terms of credit card debt, you need to look and say, why do I have credit card debt? If you have a small revolving balance that you pay off every month, that is not a problem in any way, shape or form. If you have a five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand dollar $10,000 balance, maybe you made a big purchase and it's 12 months, 0%. You have a reason why you're using someone else's money and you have the ability to repay it. Also, not a problem. I want you to look at your credit card debt and say, am I living beyond my means? Can I not use my debit card for all of my purchases? Because you're going to have to cut 
somewhere if that's the case. You are relying on income going up to eventually eradicate that debt or a year-end bonus. So think along those lines. And the last piece, Jeb, I want to touch on student loan debt. I have a lot of clients are in public servant loan forgiveness programs. I have a couple of lawyers just in the last year that had three hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand dollars of student loan debt. They both got it completely forgiven. If you're in an IBI plan and you're making two hundred dollar payments on four hundred thousand dollars of student loans, and after one hundred and twenty months, that's going to go away. That doesn't need to be factored into your planning. You have a plan for taking care of that debt. So rather than just blanket approach, no debt, think through what is this debt? Why do I have it? What is my plan for paying it off? And does having this debt mean that I'm living beyond my means? Good stuff. And so now we're going to the second piece, which is having a good down payment. And when he says have a good down payment, he strongly believes that you should have at least 20% down to buy a home so that you're avoiding PMI. And again, it's not advice that I disagree with. I think it's great advice if you have the 20%. If you have the means to get the 20% in a reasonable amount of time. Some people don't, right? You live in the state of California, median home price at the moment, roughly $850,000. So in order to get 20% down, you're talking about hundred and nearly $170,000 that you're going to have to be able to save. And some people just don't have the means to be able to do that in a reasonable time frame. So Josh, let's talk a little bit about down payment, the idea of avoiding PMI. Yeah, PMI gets a really bad rap. You should absolutely avoid it if you can, but to some degree, it's the cost of doing business, right? We've talked about the cost of doing business may be the mortgage insurance when you don't have that 20% down. Not only is it the cost of doing business, I just ran a quick number and I actually went through this calculation with a client yesterday. They're up in North Idaho. They're buying a cool house, $525,000. They can do 10% down. We ran through the numbers. They were going to have far and away the lowest payment with FHA financing. So they were going to do 10% down. It's 52.5. We ran through the numbers and I said, you qualify with doing 5% down. At 5% down, you get a slightly reduced mortgage insurance rate. Dave would be pissed. Dave would be pissed. Correct. So like literally, this is a terrible advice, terrible idea. But here's what it comes down to. The difference in payment is $156. And I can tell you 98% of my clients will answer this question one way. Would you rather have $156 lower payment or would you rather have $25,000 in the bank? And the answer is always, I would rather have $25,000 in the bank. And the funny thing is we're talking about this at cross odds with what Dave is saving, saying, Dave is saying, have a reserve, have savings, have something to fall back on, but he wants you to do both. And we just talked about it again, North Idaho, $525,000. And this isn't a mansion. It's a nice house, but we're trying to say in high cost areas, can we do all of these things? Can we have some savings? Can we have a manageable payment, have a reasonable debt load, low 30% debt to income ratio, even with the higher payment. So when you're working with a mortgage advisor, not a guy on the radio telling everyone in the millions of people in the audience listening that they should all look at this the same way. You have to run the numbers and say, what do I value? What is more important? Because for most people, having all of those things, a 20% down, 12 month in savings, avoiding mortgage insurance is not possible. And I don't even, Jeb, you said mortgage insurance is a necessary evil. Mortgage insurance is not a necessary evil. It is a gift from God. Absent mortgage insurance, you no one, in mouth? no, you, you said necessary evil. If you want, we can rewind it. And we can play. You said mortgage insurance is a necessary evil. And it's not. 
this is like having a conversation with my wife. I don't feel like I said that. We're, we'll rewind it. We're, we'll have we're, to rewind. We're, we're going to rewind it. Hopefully, I didn't paraphrase you too bad. It was in essence what you said. I will go back and say it is actually a gift from God because absent that, you are going to have to put twenty percent down. So you have an example here, Jeb, a four hundred twenty-six thousand dollars home. Median price in the U.S. is eighty-two thousand dollars. How many people come to me with eighty-two thousand dollars in the bank? I will tell you, five thousand dollars. So okay. three thousand more. Okay, eighty-five two. You're correct. I've been dyslexic here in my reading, but in looking at that, I can tell you very few of my first-time buyers have accumulated that amount of money, especially if they're first-time buyers on the early end, thirty, thirty-two, thirty-five. They might have forty, fifty thousand dollars in their four hundred one k and twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars saved. That is an astronomical number. So what I always want to do is put into context: Am I gets a bad rap because people think it's this horrifically expensive thing? So let's look at this. On a conventional loan, it's going to vary by a number of factors: how many borrowers, credit scores, how much you're putting down. If you put three percent down, it's going to be very different than fifteen percent. So I ran the numbers. Your best case is 0.10. Your worst case, and there's a caveat there with worst case, worst case is about 1%. If you have a sub 680 credit score, conventional is not the right loan for you. If you have a 620 credit score and you're trying to do 3% down, the mortgage insurance could be 2%. That's just a wall. There's no world in which if you have a 620 credit score and only 3% down, that it makes sense for you to pay a 2% premium. But looking on FHA, depending on if you do the minimum down or put 5% or more down, it's anywhere from 0.50 to 0.55%. VA has nothing monthly. They have an upfront mortgage insurance premium. USDA is 0.35%. And both FHA and USDA have an upfront component of it as well. But when we do a true apples to apples comparison and do the numbers, all of my clients look and go, I would rather have the extra money sitting in the bank than have that slightly lower monthly payment. Or they would say, I would rather buy today than wait three and a half years until I have 20% down if they're in a good position and aggressively saving. Because let's just say, you, you ran the numbers a week or so ago on the show, Jeb, over the last 40 years, I think from 82 or so, we're at like 5.6% national appreciation, over 5%. Not to say that guarantees future returns. We're coming off a period of years here with very high returns. But if we hit 3% over the next three years, that home went up 10% in cost. Or at that median there of 426, the home went up $40,000 while you were trying to save the 20%. There's another 20% on that 40,000, another eight grand you needed to save. It's a treadmill that you cannot, it's going too fast. It's a treadmill that's running faster than 99% of people can run. And it's a recipe for just wearing yourself out, quitting. No, and it's easy to stand on top of your soapbox and preach down to everyone else once you've gotten to a financial position where things are a bit easier, right? And some people look at Josh and I in the same position. Hey, you guys are already homeowners, so it's easy for you to have these conversations. What we're trying to do here is provide some context and say, yeah, it's great to have 20%, but it's not necessary. You've got to be comfortable with it, right? It's not Josh being comfortable, myself being comfortable, Dave being comfortable. Dave doesn't know your financial position. What he's doing is throwing a blanket statement out for the majority that meets the masses, right? Because the masses can't budget. The masses don't budget. The masses rack up tons of credit card debt, put themselves in financial positions where home affordability is worse than all-time lows to some degree and just aren't in a position to buy a home. You guys are doing the right things. You're educating yourself. You're putting yourself in the right position by being in conversations like this, which already tells me you're not part of the masses. Now, if 
the advice works for you that you need to do it, great. But understand, once you start talking to a professional, have the numbers run both ways, right? Josh said they had 10% down. He could have just taken it. Hey, I'll do the 10% down that you want and give you what you want. But as a professional, he says, hey, here's some options. Here's 5% down. Here's 10% down. Which would you rather do? Which makes more sense for you financially? Put you in a stronger position that if something does go wrong, hey, you got some money in savings. You got that backbone to fall back on. So again, I'm standing here on the soapbox saying that, but I think it's important to note that you got to see both sides and see where you fit into that equation. So Josh referenced this one earlier. It was the idea of being able to afford your monthly payments and throwing home maintenance into that same category. Now, it's crazy that we're even having the conversation that you should be able to afford your mortgage payments. But again, there are people that get themselves in positions where they stretch everything. They use every dollar they have to buy the home. Therefore, they don't have expenses for things like potential maintenance, which we'll talk about in a little bit more detail. In fact, we've talked about it on other episodes. And they don't have the rainy day fund, if you will, if they lose their job or something happens there. So let's talk about that. A million times here on the show, we've talked about people will come to me and say, Josh, what can I afford? And I tell them, I have no idea what you can afford. I can tell you what you qualify for. And a couple of examples, FHA loan will let you go to a 57% or 56.99% debt to income ratio. I have people that we pre-approve and I look at it and go, this is a recipe for disaster. One of our favorite clients that we talk about here regularly on the show, Jeb was a VA buyer, 70% debt to income ratio. And I had no worries with that whatsoever because knowing his situation, knowing his credit score, knowing his debts and knowing his life situation, there was a chunk of income that was not being accounted for in that process. So really, unless you have gone through and done that budgeting process and know how you spend your money. One of the reasons why VA loans have the lowest default rate is it's the only loan program that does a residual income calculation. So they figure, how many kids do you have? How big of a home are you buying? What are the utilities expense? What is your net income, not your gross, what's your net after you pay your taxes? They run that and they'll go to a much higher debt to income ratio because they can look and go, hey, there's $900 left after all that's done to live off of after all of those things are accounted for. Now, when we look at that, what are the things that possibly don't ever show up in there? We talked last week on the live show that I had a client that we pre-approved a week or two ago that we're going through the numbers and I'm like, I don't get it. He qualifies for a lot more than he's telling me he can afford. And we get down to it and he goes, just so you know, my second child will be starting school. We send both of them to private school, $1,200 each per month. So they have a $2,400 commitment for what is that, 13 years, Jeb, from when they start school to when they're finished with high school, even if you don't pay for college? So he said, I'm comfortable with this monthly payment. He had his budget. It was dialed in. Now, maybe your spending category is not $2,400 a month on sending your kids to school. Maybe you're a single girl and you love vacationing. And twice a year, you take an extravagant vacation Ooh, that's seven, fun. eight, ten thousand. It sounds way more fun than sending kids to private school. But you know that, hey, at the end of the year, I'm spending fifteen dollars to $20,000 on vacations, and I do not want to change that. So that's where that budget comes into play. I think, Jeb, relating back to what your debts are, if you're not budgeting, you may not even understand why that credit card has gone from $1,500 to $5,500 over the last three years. You need to pencil that budget out. There are tools online that will suck in your debit card, your credit card, your bank accounts, and all you have to do is go in and categorize one time. And from then on, 
the AI is going to just categorize those things. You get a nice report at the end of the month. And a lot of times it can be eye-opening. Most people have no idea how many subscription services they have. And if they do, how much that amounts to every month. I just got the one from Spotify the other day. There are Spotify's going up $3 a month. Is that a big amount? No. But if you have 10 streaming services, they all over the course of 18 yep. months go up 3%. You're talking $30 a month. And there might be one in there that's now, it started at $12. I think when I started with Netflix, it was eight bucks. And now they're up to 20. And you go, I don't watch Netflix. Do I want to pay $250 a year to have Netflix? So budgeting is really important. And we talked about this, Jeb, you and I did yesterday. Maybe you don't have to have a lifelong discipline of budgeting. I can tell you, I do not. I don't budget every month. I know what it looks like. It's hard for me in the commission industry where income can be way up, way down. So it's not a salary coming in every month where I know what that looks like, but you have to do it for a period of time. You have to get comfortable with where does my money really go and what am I spending it on? Because you know what you can afford. I know what you can qualify for. No, and to speak to that, I'm not one that looks at a budget, puts every single line item into a spreadsheet every single month to know where it goes. I got three kids, I've got a wife and myself and commission business, different incomes coming in and out. But I will say that I have a spreadsheet that I go through probably once a quarter and say, okay, what are we paying? What has to be paid every single month, right? What is, regardless of what happens to income, what happens, this stuff comes out it needs to be taken into account. That's where you got to get comfortable in knowing where your money is going. Like Josh said, with subscription services, I was on my computer last night and about, a, I don't know, a month ago, my son said, hey, dad, can I buy this thing? And I said, what is it? He told me and he said, it's a yearly service. And I was like, dude, no. He goes, I'll cancel it after the first month. And I said, well, if you don't, you're going to have to pay me. He's 11. I'm like, dude, you're going to have to pay me for it. And so he paid for the initial thing. I think the thing was like 30 bucks. So he gave me 30 bucks. And last night, in fact, funny that we're having this conversation now, I got an alert on my phone, $3.99 being charged from Nintendo to my card. I'm like, what is that? I go in there. Lo and behold, it's the conversation that we had. I go, dude, you didn't cancel this. You owe me four bucks. And so he went and got four bucks. Picture gave me five. So I made a dollar out of this deal. Hey, 20% interest on this, 25% interest rather. And I went in and canceled the thing on his behalf because it's the conversation we had. So again, it's just knowing where your money is going so that you have an idea, so that you're comfortable. And if you're in a position where you receive W-2s and you have a set salary, it's a lot easier than Josh and I's position. And it's not impossible with our position. Let's mm. be honest, it can be done. It's just more difficult to do. And it's something that if you're not doing, you at least need to get an idea of what that looks like. So with that, Josh, I'll be honest, I don't budget for home maintenance expenses. So things like the water heater, things like my roof, things like whatever is happening with the house, I don't budget for those. Now, Dave believes that you should factor maintenance expenses, that sort of thing into your overall budget. I'm not sure exactly how that's broken down, but what are your thoughts on it? I would say the same. I know what the ongoing expense, we have a gardener, a pool guy, lawn maintenance, a person that comes and cleans the house. So those things I have to account for and I know what they are and I know, can we afford these? Is that reasonable? But in terms of things going on with the house, like upgrades, I do upgrades when I have the money. And again, maybe this is a function of being in commissioned industry when things are going well, hey, there's some money over in the bank and we'd like a new hall bath. Okay, let's do that. The only thing right now that I can think in terms of we had five years ago, we had to replace the water heater. So another five, seven, 10 years, we'll have to replace it again. 
not a huge charge, but it's a good example of something that could come down the line that you will have to replace regularly. My roof, we've talked about this on the show before. My roof was done in 2000. We bought in 2003. We're 23 years into the life of a 30 year roof. Not nearly as great looking as it was just from an aesthetics perspective. I'm probably going to replace it before it needs to be replaced because I don't like looking at it, not looking perfect. And that is a big expense. So I need to either say, do I have an account with a chunk of money in it where I can pay that? Or do I need to start setting aside money in the next three, four years to replace that roof? So it's something to be aware of. Generally, every rule of thumb that I see online, I go, that vastly exceeds what we need to do. And remember, this is also personal preference. My wife, she is a perfectionist, clean freak. Our house is perfect at all times. If you do not maintain your house that way, maybe instead of painting every three years, you paint every seven years. Maybe instead of getting flooring every seven years, you go 15 years. So know yourself, know what your expectation is of how you're going to maintain the home. But big picture, I would say it's an issue you need to be aware of. There are going to be maintenance and expenses. I would say work with your realtor, Jeb, on the way in of saying, what condition is this home in? What things here could come down the pike conceivably in the next 10, 15, 20 years. And if you're incredibly worried about it, I'm not a huge fan of home warranties, but the home warranty seller eight times out of 10 buys you at closing that covers one year, you can renew that. And that can insure you against one of these big expenses of having to do a furnace, a water heater, those type of things. I think you'll pay more over the long haul, but it fixes that cost and enables you to account for that. So what are your thoughts on it, Jim? Yeah, I think it's all about knowing what you're buying when you're buying it, right? If you're buying new construction, probably less of a concern, right? These aren't things you need to factor in to, to start with. If you're buying a house that has original furnace, original water heater, yeah, believe it or not, there are still houses that have water heaters from the 60s and 70s that still work. Amazing. Josh talked about they, they made them better than seven years. No, they did. It's crazy, yeah. right? It was a different product back then, but these are things that you need to have in your head. So if you're going in spending all your money, you might put yourself in a bad financial position. So just knowing this stuff, being aware of this stuff, being able to place it in the budget or whatever you want to do to know that, hey, when this comes due, if it comes due, I'm in a position to pay it. Side note, I got a flat tire. I didn't get a flat tire, but yesterday, tread started coming off of one of my tires. I take it in. Again, I find out I need four new tires. The tires are 15,000 miles. That's it. But because they're a lower profile tire and whatever, they need to be replaced. It's over a thousand bucks, right? Fortunately, there's money there to do that. But these are things that you got to think about. Cars are different. Houses are different. So just know what you're looking at as far as expenses so that you can factor this stuff in. Now, I'll go back to the home warranty thing, Josh, because a lot of people have home warranties. I'm not going to go on a tangent about home warranties. I think home warranties can be a good thing. And a lot of people have problems with them because they call and the home warranty company doesn't cover anything. Understand the home warranty company is an insurance company. They will fight against you in many ways to avoid paying things. If that's the case, you have a home warranty, you have things that need to be replaced and it's reasonable for them to fix it and or replace it, and they're arguing, call your real estate agent, get your agent involved in the situation, in the transaction, in that process. Because I can tell you, I've had many things from clients that were told no by the home warranty company. I called my account executive and got them done. I've had garage doors replaced. I've had built-in refrigerators replaced. I've had high ticket items that were declined. 
get replaced. So that's just my tangent there on home warranties. They can suck, but they can suck less if you know how to deal with them. Now, Josh, two things, again, both important, really good advice from Dave, and then we'll get into terrible advice. Uh, really good advice, having money to pay your closing costs, having money for moving expenses. So thoughts when I say those, and then any rebuttal to the advice. I say this is mind boggling to me, but if you've listened for any period of time, you've heard me say multiple times, I'll talk to someone who's spoken with another lender and I go, yeah, say, cool. You're approved for a $375,000 purchase. What was the loan type? What's the monthly payment? And how much cash do you need to close on that? I got no idea. So when we do a pre-approval, the most important thing that you can walk away with is here's my options in terms of loan programs. Here's the one that's best for me. Here's what my payment is going to be and how much cash I have to close on that purchase. So I really lump it under it's Dave's talking about have a good down payment. It's really having enough money to close on a loan program that fits your needs and puts you in a good position. The second part of that moving expenses, love to hear your perspective on this, but when I hear it, I go, Hey, most of my clients are moving locally. And if you have a couple of friends and one of them has a pickup truck, moving expenses can be zero. If you're moving cross country and you have a two-story, 5,000 square foot house, it could cost you ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. That's a pretty wide range. You need to know where you're moving from and two, how much you have to move and who's going to do that work. So again, it could be nothing. It could be fairly significant. What are your thoughts? I'm going to disagree. I'm thinking once you're out of college, you can no longer ask your friends to help you move. Well, if you call me to help you move, we're good friends. I'm going to tell you, hire someone. Now, if you need help with a piece of furniture, hey, I'm your guy. I'll help you move the furniture. But I'm not getting caught up in moves. I've helped people do it after college. I'm just being transparent. It's a joke. No, like have money, dude. You graduated college. and You are in a position now to do your own moving. That said, moving locally, yes, Josh, less expensive, but there are cost of trucks. Rarely are you ever going to be able to do it in the back of a truck, right? You got couches, you got bedroom furniture, you got mattresses. Typically, you're going to need some sort of moving truck. That stuff's not cheap. Any of this stuff today isn't cheap. With inflation, with just costs going up, to rent a truck for a couple of hours, probably going to cost you a couple hundred bucks, if not more than that. You're going to need to buy boxes. You're going to need to buy tape. Yeah, there's going to be some expenses in there. You just need to have an idea. Don't just think, hey, Jeb, I get to move. Yeah. Did you factor all this stuff in? No, I spent all of my money buying the house. So again, it's important just to keep the stuff in the back of your head. Hey, I'm going to have some expenses when this takes place. Now, at the same time, Josh, closing costs, right? We talked a little bit about closing costs. If I think the realtor is going to pay my closing costs, if I think the lender is going to pay my closing costs, should I avoid having the money or is that something that I still should be having that fund? Being able to make the closing costs gives you options. So let's say depending on where you are in the country, depending on how you're structuring your loan, people will tell you two to 5% really should be say one and a half to three and a half percent. There are some high closing cost states where you may be towards the high end of that. If you have the money, you have the option of negotiating on every aspect of the property, price, any number of things. But if you don't have it and you're asking the seller to pay for it, then you're at the mercy of saying, we're not going to cut our price. We want this number. Maybe the house doesn't appraise. There's any number of things. So it reduces your options, you not having the funds. And what I can say 
there are companies online, hey, use one of our realtors. We're going to credit you back some of your commission. No one, unless it's like your mom. I have a client that's actually going to close this week. It's not his mom. It's a business partner that he's a contractor. He's done a bunch of work for the realtor. And she's giving him $10,000 out of a $14,000 commission. That's about as aggressive as it's going to get. Most people are not going to work for free. So getting the entire bit of your closing costs covered by the realtor, covered by the lender, covered by the seller, those all come with trade-offs. So if you're able to do it and come up with your own closing costs, it just gives you more options and more ability to negotiate and be more aggressive when you find the exact right home. Yeah, and it goes back to budgeting, what we were talking about earlier. Just knowing that you have the money there, where it's going or where it might go. And then if it doesn't go there, then, hey, you got some, maybe some extra money that you can do some other things with. Maybe it's an upgrade or maybe it can go into that maintenance fund or whatever. It's just being able to prioritize, categorize and have options at the end of the day. Now, Josh, here we go with the terrible advice, in my opinion. Now, if you can follow this advice, if it fits your lifestyle and it's manageable, fantastic. But I think for the majority of people out there, it is not. And that advice, it's called the 25% house rule. And essentially what it is, in order to calculate how much home you can afford, you should only be using 25% of your take-home pay after taxes are taken out. Okay, so we're going to talk about what that means. So when a lender qualifies you, Josh, you guys are using gross monthly income before any taxes are taken out. And you've got lenders that will qualify you up to 50%, 57% in some cases, depending on the entire load. And Dave is saying use 25% of a smaller number. So what are your thoughts? It's nearly impossible. You have an example here you're going to walk us through, but it is nearly impossible. Even if we say go get a time machine back to 2019, home prices, depending on where you're at, 30 to 40% lower, interest rates, 50 to 60% of where they're at. It was really difficult, impossible in Southern California, impossible in the Bay Area, impossible in New York, impossible in Boston, lots of areas where it is just, you'll never own a home. So unless you're comfortable saying, hey, I am never going to be a homeowner, it just doesn't work. Now, most parts of the country got to participate in the run-up over the last few years, and every part of the country is participating in the increase in interest rates. So if you do not own a home and you would like to own a home, following this advice is going to be about impossible. So forget whether it's good advice or bad advice. Let's show the numbers here, Jevin, to show them how this is not even possible for the vast majority of first-time buyers. Let's just say, I don't know what the median income across the United States is, but what we're doing here is we're using $100,000 income. So for some areas of the country, that's going to be really high. $100,000 here in California, decent income for a single person, but going to still make it really difficult to do much. And we're going to talk about that here. But if you make $100,000 a year, that breaks down to $8,333 per month, okay? Now, if we say that that's gross monthly income, so before any taxes are taken out, now he uses net income after take home, which in some cases could mean you're paying into a 401k, you're paying into a deferred comp. Your take home could be really shallow once factoring all this stuff in. So you got to be able to take a step back and look at this, but let's just say that $8,333 after taxes is going to be somewhere between $6,000, $7,000 a month, okay? Which for some people might be accurate. Some it might not be depending on exemptions. But if you took 25% of that's $1,750. That's based off $6,500. So $1,750 is what he is saying 
should go to your mortgage payment. Now, <laughs> your property taxes in some states are that amount. But nevertheless, if you were to look at a $400,000 home today, and let's just say an interest rate's a 7%. Interest rates are gonna change a little bit here and there, but we're gonna give you two different examples. So interest rates today, 7%, your mortgage payment, principal and interest, just your mortgage payment is $2,661. That doesn't count property taxes, doesn't count insurance, doesn't count anything else. So you're already $900 above the amount that he's talking about there. Now, let's just say we were able to take that same time machine that took us back to 2019, and it was able to take us back to 21. And you were able to get a 3.5% interest rate on that $400,000 home. At that time, that payment was still higher than what he's allowing at $1,796. So you're still above that 25% number. You're close to it, but still above it. So if you're following his principles hard and fast, you don't qualify for that home either. But let's just say, for example, you've got your budget dialed in and you're comfortable going a little bit higher on that number. Say you're willing to go to 40% debt to income ratio. That takes you up to $2,800 a month, which in the case of a 7% mortgage, you can now afford that $400,000 home. Now, if you're here in California, that still doesn't do much. Again, the median price here in the state of California is about $850,000. In Huntington Beach, where we're located, it's about $1.25 million. So it, it all depends, Josh. And what we didn't factor in there or what we didn't talk about in there is those people that bought back in 21 and were able to get the 3.5% rate. We're just going to use that for example. They've seen 35 30% appreciation since they bought their home. So that's a gain that they would have never been able to take advantage of had they followed these rules hard and fast. So what are your thoughts? Let's set back to a couple of things. This is where budgeting comes into play. Someone giving you a hard and fast rule doesn't work. You need to know how you spend, what your income looks like. No one has a crystal ball. We don't know what the future looks like. But if you've been on a trajectory and you know you're going to get a promotion every two to three years, your company gives certain raises, you work for the government and there are certain cost of living allowances, you know what that looks like that no one else can know. So this is way overly conservative, will keep most people from ever owning a home. And when we look at that, the important part is what are you missing out on by not being able to do that? I can tell you, I almost never have a client who is below a 25% DTI considering net income. I have a client here recently, we closed at a 33 or 34%. Now granted, this is California, much bigger than a $400,000 loan. I was like, oh, these guys are doing really well. They kept it at about a third of their gross income. It's one of those things where you're not gonna drive yourself into a ditch going this way, but you may never be able to get on the highway either. You're just sitting in the car on the side of the road. So from that perspective, is it good advice, bad advice? I just think it's irrelevant. For most people, it just means, hey, I can't even play that game. So you have to be prudent and think this through, but going back to your budget and knowing your numbers and working with a mortgage advisor who can tell you what you qualify for, then you can look at and say, here's what I can afford in that it enables me to buy a home and continue to save money. You and I think like the basic foundation of building financial freedom is having good job, good income, keeping good credit, buying a home, saving at least 10% in a tax advantaged account. With that, you will arrive at age 65 in really good shape. We had a comment on the YouTube channel this morning. Someone thought they had made terrible mistakes and she goes through and explains it all to me. 
She has a $1.3 million condo. She owes $280,000 on it. That's someone who thought they made all the mistakes. Mm-hmm. So is it a guarantee? Are there other people who've done worse, who've actually made real mistakes? Yes. But looking at getting in at a reasonable level with a payment you can afford and letting time take care of it. Because in 20 years, as a homeowner, you're going to be well below the numbers that he's advising. It's just very hard to enter the market with a ratio like he is advising. Yeah. We talk oftentimes about the prime buying age is around 33 years old. That's when most people historically have been home buyers. And so typically when you're at 33, you're at an income, usually an entry level type job for a large majority of people out there. Maybe you've moved, maybe you've got some stability in your job, but you're still earning money, right? You're still on that path of higher wages, higher success. And so if you're able to, the earlier you're able to fix that cost, the less of your budget it's going to be long-term. And in this episode, we've stressed a lot about the importance of homeownership from the financial aspect. We haven't even touched on what it does for stability in families and the other things it creates. We started this podcast back in 2022. And one of the first episodes we did was talking about why homeownership is important and all of the things you get from homeownership, the benefits you get outside of the financial gain. And I'd ask you to consider that. Again, we don't want you to put yourself in a financial position where you're not comfortable. You need to be able to sleep at night. If following Dave's principles and rules put you in that position, fantastic. Stick to it, do it. Just know that it's going to put some limitations on what you're able to do. And if you're okay with that, fine. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the advice, stepping on my own tongue here to some degree, because I talked about how some of the stuff is bad. It's not bad. None of it is bad. It's difficult. And for some, it can put you in a position where you'll never become homeowners. And I think homeownership is that important that sometimes you got to be able to step outside of that box. And Josh, earlier you were talking about budgets. There's a quote that I wrote down that is accredited to Dave. And whether or not he said it, someone else said it, you never really know these things. But it says a budget is telling you where your money is going instead of wondering where it went. So I think the idea of putting that money on paper, knowing where it's going, where you're comfortable for it to go, will put you in a better position long-term. So Josh, any final words? What I would say is his advice is the real estate and housing equivalent to going to the bowling alley where they have the bumpers up. So if you're a terrible bowler and three or four or five years old, you need that to successfully be able to bowl and put a score up. Otherwise it'd be gutter ball after gutter ball. If you're a reasonably athletic adult, even if you've never bowled, it's silly. You can actually have a decent score. Maybe it's a hundred, maybe it's 120 and someone in the league is going to look at you and laugh. Or you might be that guy that plays in the league and he's got a 210 average. Absolutely doesn't need those things. Would never even hit the bumpers. It's overly conservative and not necessary for most people. So from that perspective, it's just overly conservative. Again, nothing wrong. Just like you said, you can absolutely, if you're able to buy, follow this advice, but it's going to keep a large proportion of the population out of the game that needs to be in the game. Now, one other piece that Dave talks about in his little breakdown here is the idea of working with a professional real estate agent. Now, as a professional real estate agent, something I largely agree with. Now, again, a lot of listeners out there are going to say, Jeb, you're just agreeing with that because it benefits you directly. No, there's a lot of things an expert can do and can guide you through the process that will benefit you as a homeowner, as a potential home buyer, somebody going through the process. Now, When I see Dave's advice, there is a portion of it that the consumer should know, and that's that Dave benefits directly 
from some of his advice in the sense when he talks about homeownership, oftentimes he's always talking about his network and his network is vetted. There are certain things that you have to be able to provide and follow in order to be part of his network, but also understand that there's a monthly fee associated with all of them. They pay a fee to be a part of this network. So just understand that when Dave is talking about homeownership rather and getting into the process, there is a direct correlation to his financial pocketbook in the idea of working with a professional and working with his networks. Josh, what are your thoughts on it? Dave may actually be the highest paid realtor in the United States when you realize how many little chunks he's getting across so many transactions yeah. because he is so popular. He makes a great point here. In the US, unless you change the system, the way it works is a seller lists their home and they agree to a commission and then the listing broker is going to cooperate with the selling broker and share that commission. So to you, unless you have completely turned this system over and come up with a new system, it is already accounted for in the transaction and the listing price. So you are getting that covered. And most importantly, people think or will say, oh, realtors are overpaid. What do they do to make that commission? You're working with the wrong realtor. I can tell you at least 80% of realtors are just as bad as you think. That top 10, maybe top 20% will earn all of their money back in dollars over and over and are well worth that price. Even going back to what Jeb said earlier, how many times he's been able to get the home warranty company cover a big major expense that they did not want to cover. If you're working with your uncle Joe, who got his license 20 years ago and has done four transactions, he has zero pull with that company. And that's just one of a hundred examples. So again, there's no cost to it until the system gets a massive overhaul and there can be massive benefits. The thing that's incumbent upon you is making sure you are getting with one of those top 10 to 20% realtors. And that said, working with a professional, if you're watching this on video, you've probably seen me on my phone. Half this episode, returning text messages and talking to clients that are actually in the process of doing disclosures and they have questions about the process. As a professional, yeah, I've allotted time in my schedule not to have to deal with that, but it's important to me, right? They're important to me. Getting their answers are important to me because they rely on me. And so you need that person that you can rely on. Like my clients are relying on me in the middle of this episode. So Josh, I know Dave talks about 30-year fixed mortgages, and I don't know a lot of detail about loan programs that he promotes, but what are your thoughts on having the right loan program? Very simple, very vanilla. Dave says, know which mortgage option is right for you. And what that means is it a 30 year fixed or a 15 year fixed. He pushes the 15 really hard, but those are the only two options in his world. We went back, we talked about VA is zero down. USDA is zero down. FHA, three and a half percent down. He and I agree that he's very anti down payment assistance program because for the most part, it's not free money. You're paying extra for the honor of someone giving you some money at closing. But all of those options need to be considered, especially when you're doing less than 20% down. It is important to do a side-by-side -side comparison of all of the loans that you could potentially qualify for so you can see and quantify the differences and determine which one is best for you above and beyond just a 30 versus a 15. For most people, I will say a 15 is not even an option, even though he aggressively promotes it. We're in a simple example, $400,000 loan today, a 30 year at 7% is 2646. A 15 year at 6%, 6.5% is 34.66. So $800 more per month. Most people, that's not an option. It will keep them from qualifying. And it certainly saves you a ton of money in cutting that loan term in half, but it's a 31% premium in the monthly payment. Even if you could do it and you could qualify, as long as you are disciplined and can save and invest, 
I would recommend making a voluntary additional principal payment of $800 a month to give yourself the optionality and the flexibility of making a smaller payment if something were to happen, if big expenses come up, or if you're comfortable with investing, I would say take the $800 and invest it. And if you get the seven, 8% long haul return in the stock market, you are going to arrive at a freedom point where that extra $800 will allow you to pay it off in say 10 years, 11 years, 12 years, much sooner than the 15 year. Another thing to consider, those aren't the only options. You can do a 20 year loan, a 25 year loan. You may not have the interest rate savings, but you won't be locking yourself into as high of a payment. So I absolutely agree with Dave. You need to know your mortgage options. There's just a lot more options than he would have you consider. While you were talking about that, I did a quick calculation. So earlier we talked about using 25% of your take home pay towards your budget. Earlier we said $100,000 probably breaks in breaks down to about 1750. We ran payments on a $400,000 home at 7% using a 30-year fixed and that was $2661. So almost $900 more than your budget on a $400,000 home. When you go to a 15-year, that payment goes from 2661 to 3595. So almost $1,000 more per month by doing a 15-year fixed mortgage. So if you're hard and fast Dave, I'm taking everything he says to heart and I'm going to do it. You're never going to own a home. The majority of you aren't. And that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about the idea of Dave Ramsey keeping you broke. But Dave says one more thing, Josh. He says it all the time. And he says, make stupid hard. So what is he talking about when he's talking about making stupid hard? In the context of homeownership, what he's saying is, Making additional principal payments or a chunk payment, 10, 15, $20,000. Pearl leaves you $50,000, pay that mortgage down. Work on getting completely debt-free. So what he considers that is we're going to get a return on that money. It's forced savings. And he'll go so far as to say it's a savings account, and if you need it, you can access it. It is hard and it is expensive to access money in your home equity versus money sitting in an investment account. So if you are completely undisciplined and are worried that you're going to burn through all of that money on vacations and fancy steak dinners, his advice is good. It will keep you from going broke. If you're disciplined and know how to invest, I would absolutely tell someone to lean towards saving and investing the money versus paying down a mortgage for the exact same reasons that we just went through in the 15 versus 30 year. So is it terrible advice? No, it's overly conservative and it's not applicable for most people who are grown up adults and can save and invest their additional funds. With that said, I'm gonna leave you with our little motto here, buy right, borrow smart, build wealth. Until next time, adios. Amigos. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.